kids are off to a children's worship time, corporate worship time. They're, we are trying to slowly acquaint little ones with corporate worship events and preaching and things like that that are really hard for kids. And uh, so they are actually in with us the last Sunday of the month. The other Sundays of the month, they go over to the treehouse for a time of worship there where they're being taught about offerings, about worship and song. Uh, they are actually... She, uh, that they actually receive a little message and um, a little smaller than the message that they get in here and um, we're trying to acquaint them with what's taking place over there I want to uh, briefly share something and then we're going to begin in prayer <clears throat> we have a can y'all kill this from up there or do you have to come up here and kill it it's just, just kind of a background fuzz that is bothering me <clears throat> we have a, uh, a family that's been worshiping with us recently, and we had the chance to visit with them this week. They have worshiped with us probably three or four times, and um, they come from a, from a church in Dallas area that is a very program-driven church, very um, tip, more traditional in terms of um, how they worship corporately, not in terms of form necessarily, but... They use a quarterly. They use uh, it's committee led in many ways, and um, they shared with me this last week, very humbly, very carefully, very gently, that uh, this last Sunday they love Crosspoint. They love what they've been seeing here. But this last Sunday, that between the Sunday school class, there was kind of a discussion about programs and committees and um, curriculums and things like that. That was almost presented like that was broken like that wasn't good, and what we're doing here is good. And then in the message, I began the message by sharing a message that we'll get into, kind of part two here in a moment, that was presented. I made a statement at the beginning of the message that, that uh, was along the lines of this message is absent from the North American, contemporary North American church. <clears throat> and I bring that up because I apologize to them you know, sometimes we, don't, we feel like if we have, if we don't really feel something, we shouldn't have to apologize. But sometimes we need to apologize for perceptions. And that's what I apologize for. I said, you know, I know the classroom, I know the teacher, I know the people involved, and I know that their heart is not that we've arrived and figured it out and everybody else will someday discover how we're doing it. I know that's not my heart, but there are times where we can come across like that inadvertently. And I just want to share with you an apology. If you read that into anything that I have said or anything I say, I want you to know that uh, we're, we're partners with the more traditional church and the, the more programmed church. Those are our teammates. And that church connects with someone that we can't connect with. And likewise, we connect with someone that they can't connect with. And, you know, naturally, if you're excited about where you are, <laughs> There's an overwhelming feeling that I've found it. I've discovered what's right. And there's almost an inadvertent message that we can send to other people that someday they'll discover how we're doing it. And um, I wanted to offer that apology and also share with you, it's another chance for me to reiterate that as you get to know me, if you haven't gotten to know me yet, or as you hear me preach over a period of time, I will disappoint you. I mean that. And it, I kind of enjoy sharing that with you because my life growing up, I probably put more faith in my preacher than pastor than I should have and didn't realize until I'm here now that he was made of the same stuff that I 
uh, was then and am now. And um, we shouldn't put our faith in man. I mean, hopefully the message is being lived out in the man. And there's a certain amount of ethos that's coming through the message where it's impacting him. But you'll find that I've heard preaching described as truth passed through human personality. So the personality affects it sometimes. And even occasionally the personality can get in the way. It's ironic to me that in a message where I'm, we're talking about our, our stench and our, our deadness and our wretchedness that Ben McGraw could manage to come across as proud. It doesn't surprise me. It's just a reminder that um, I'm made of the same stuff that Lazarus was made of. So I offer that apology in humility and let you know that we're people in process, every one of us, including myself. So uh, if you've seen that, know that we have definitely not arrived. In that spirit, this morning, uh, each week we pray for local churches. I want to pray for Ridgecrest Baptist Church. They've just called a new pastor. I know his last name, and I have a pretty good memory of his first name, but his last name is Herbert and Kevin. I was going to say Kevin or Keith, so, huh? Is, if he's in Louisiana, it'd be a bear. Okay, well, good. We'll call him a bear the way it ought to be pronounced. <laughs> good. All right, we'll pray for Kevin and his family, and we'll pray for the Ridgecrest family. Pray for a time of um, growth and um, healing and a time of uh, revival in that body. <clears throat> Lord, what a marvelous gospel we share. We, this morning, want to lift up a fellow uh, sister church, Ridgecrest Baptist Church, that shares the same Lord and the same gospel, the same commission, and we, we beg for health in that bride. Pray for Kevin. We pray for his family, Lord. We pray for a sweet transition to that body and just a perfect fit and leadership. Lord, we pray that as he moves there that you'll call out other leaders to come alongside him that he can be accountable to and uh, that you'll see a, a body that is growing more responsive, more broken in worship, more delighted with Christ and more surprised by grace. And... Uh, Lord, we, uh, we pray for their time in worship right now. Who, whoever is preaching uh, here in the next few minutes, Lord, we pray that, that they are empowered. Pray that they are instruments. We pray that they are out of the way where you can communicate with your people. And um, Lord, we also pray that in whatever way, tangible or um, immeasurable, that we can connect with them as true brothers and sisters in Christ. And if that's represented in a, a shared cubicle, um, in an office space or whether it's represented in a corporate engagement of a shared uh, ministry, Lord, we just pray that, that we uh, have a true expression of partnership. And Lord, please guard us from ever, ever thinking that we've arrived. Please keep us in a place of teachability. A place of humility. And um, in that, Lord, we just pray that you are huge man is small and growing smaller and uh, that Christ is everything. Lord, we pray in these next few minutes that uh, this time will be yours for your glory. Pray that you'll show us what worship means, that you'll show us where worship comes from and that as a result of that you'll find a people more quickened, more excited, more in awe of you. 
And Lord, also we pray for Jake and Stephanie. We uh, so love them, so uh, cherish their partnership, and we beg that you'll nourish them on the field and uh, that they will recognize that they have a family here that has a deep burden for them and that they'll experience true nourishment through their bride stateside. Um, Lord, we give you this time in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. All right. Let's dig in. Turn to John chapter 11. I normally write out page numbers um, from the Bibles that are in your seat backs, and I'm realizing as I'm standing up here that I failed to do that this morning. So I hope that, that maybe you can kind of feel your way around. If you don't know where a book of the Bible is, you can turn to the front of the Bible, and there's a table of contents. Don't feel funny doing that. I'd rather you do that and see what's written in there than not. Um, and also, if you don't have a Bible, that blue one in front of you is now yours. You can write in it, put your name in the front, own it. And um, we would love for you to take that. We're in John chapter 11, <clears throat> beginning in verse 38. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone, and then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he'd said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. In the original language, he said, Lazarus, here, outside. Almost like saying, get out here now. The man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. There's no imagery wasted in the book of John. The book of John is a book of signs, and these signs all point to the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is these things have been written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we may have life in his name. It's a book about salvation. It helps us understand how we may be saved, what we're saved from, how he saves us. It just is is a textbook that helps us understand salvation. Now here in chapter 11... It's the last of the signs that he communicates, unless you want to consider the resurrection itself a sign, which I would probably consider an additional sign. Here in chapter 11, this sign of him raising Lazarus from the dead, as he calls forth Lazarus, a man dead four days, stinking and decaying, as he calls him forth to life, Lazarus' deadness, his decomposing body and resultant stench, and his utter and complete inability to do anything about his condition are images of our condition apart from Christ. We began to lay that foundation last week, and we're going to revisit some of that foundation and actually even add a little bit more to that foundation. But we asked the question last week, is this imagery too strong? Is this accurate? Let's attempt an ant to ask and answer the question, Do we really stink? 
apart from Christ. Some passages that I introduced last week that we've eaten over the past few months as we've moved through the book of John. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 says, All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds, not some of them, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment offered to a holy God. In contrast to a holy God, they are like filthy garments. And all of us wither like a leaf and all our, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Not some of us, all of us. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart being the source and place of who we are, the decisions we make, the place that we go, even more so than our brains, our heart drives us. Our heart compels us, and in Jeremiah, it tells us here that our heart, that thing that compels us, is more deceitful than all else. It lies to us. It looks back at us in the mirror and says, that's cool. Go right ahead and do that. It's not a big deal. It's more deceitful than all else, and it's desperately sick. Psalm chapter 51, verse 5, David has just been addressed about his sin with Bathsheba. Nathan comes to him and he says, you are the man. He uses a parable to help David appreciate the gravity of what he's done. And David writes this psalm embedded within the middle of the psalm. He says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Not only are we sinful now as we think and marry and make decisions from that deceitful heart, not only are we sinful as we pay bills and we go living life, but we were even sinful from the beginning when we were conceived. We were conceived in sin. Next week, I'm gonna just giving you a little bit of insight into next week. We're going to look at the issue of corporate guilt. We're going to look at corporate guilt, and um, you'll understand that point a lot better. Last week, we also looked at the Genesis flood account. We considered that in the flood, at the beginning of the flood, in Genesis chapter 6, that the Lord saw man, mankind, and he said, his heart is evil continually. And he said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things, and to birds of the sky, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So then the flood comes and it wipes out all humanity except for Noah and his family. Wipes out all the animals and all the critters except for two of every kind that could get on the ark. Then the water subsides and Noah and his family are all that are left. Noah and his family climb off the ark and in verse 20 of chapter 8, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. You can imagine him closing his eyes if he had anatomical eyes, closing his spiritual eyes going, oh, that smells good. And then you might think things are going to be different now. And here's how they're different, just in terms of his promise and what he reckons, but man is no different. Listen. And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. I would like for it to say because man is different and because we learned something from a long swim and a resulting drowning. But then it goes on to say, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing 
as I have done. The intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Who's man at that time? It's Noah and his family. The same guy that in chapter 6, it said that he found him favored. He found him favored because there was not anything special about Noah. God reckoned him favored. Man was still evil from his youth. Man's heart is evil. Turn to the book of Acts. That's just a small sampling of some of the passages that we looked at last week. I want to take you to some new passages. A few brief passages that continue to lay the foundation of our true condition. Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to be looking. Let me kind of preface Acts chapter 2. This is where we're introduced to the story of Pentecost. Pentecost is a Jewish festival. Pentecost took place seven weeks after Passover. Now, if you know your history, biblical history, you know that Passover was a time when Christ was crucified. This is taking place, what we're about to read, takes place seven weeks after his crucifixion. If you also know some details, additional details, that he was uh, buried and raised on the third day, so there's two or three days in there, depending on how you count those days. And then the Scripture tells us that he walked the earth for 40 days, uh, displaying, revealing himself to different people before he ascended to the right hand of the Father. So if you take 40, 42, 43 days, you're talking about about six weeks. Six times seven is 42 I have to go over that in my head just to remember that. So we're talking about a week after Christ ascends. You're about to see what happens. If you want proof for the resurrection, is this proof enough alone that seven weeks earlier that these guys that we're about to, this is a side message that I just can't pass up, that these guys that we're about to hear the boldness of their message ran like chickens seven weeks earlier. They hid in an upper room. They were scaredy cats of the upper room. They were chickens that scattered at the crucifixion. And they were frightened fishermen who resorted to their fishing boats. And here it is seven weeks later where they're preaching in the same town where Christ was crucified to the same people at another festival. And they're preaching boldly. Something happened. They saw the risen Lord. And many of them went on to meet martyrdom. If you need proof for the res resurrection, that's a pretty good proof right there. I think at some point I'd say, okay, I was kidding. Please don't cut my head off. I was just joking. Okay, side message. All right, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. This is Peter's sermon. This is the same chicken of seven weeks earlier who's now preaching boldly in Jerusalem. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Who nailed him to the cross? You nailed him to the cross, men and women. By the hands of godless men, you nailed him to the cross. It's there again in verse 36. He's on into his message. Verse 36, it says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
If you think this was a random occurrence where he's accusing these people he's preaching to of crucifying Christ, turn over the next page to chapter 4, verse 10. This is after Peter's second sermon. He's now been arrested and he's standing before a Jewish council. And in verse 10 he says this. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. There's the potential to read both of those passages in context and say, well, he's speaking to Israel. He's speaking to the Jews. He's not speaking to us. But this is a theme from Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, he says, And he himself, speaking of Christ, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. So with Peter, let's agree with him this morning. With Peter, I'll say that we crucified Christ by the hands of sinful men. We may not have been there. It may not have been our hands that drove the nails, but it was our sin that held him up there. It was our sin that forced him to the cross. It was our sin that nailed him there, essentially. I thought it interesting about the Passion movie that one of the, what I would think one of the key phrases of the movie was eliminated because it came across as anti-Semitic. The timing is not ideal to share this, especially what Mel is up to lately. But the, the phrase that was not translated in the movie comes from Matthew chapter 27, verse 25. And all the people said, when they're saying, give us Barabbas, all the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. That was a statement of responsibility. Hold us responsible. And what they didn't realize is that now, 2,000 years later, that's our prayer. It's our recognition and our prayer. We recognize ourselves as responsible. His blood be on us. And on our children, and yet it's a prayer at the same time. His blood, please be on us and on our children. We murdered the innocent. So do we stink? Do we smell? I believe we can say, yes, we do. How do we get to these aggressive assessments of man's condition? Here's how we get there. Because man is not the judge nor the standard. I said it last week. I'm probably going to say it every week of this series. Man is not the judge nor the standard. God is both judge and his holiness is the standard. Christ said in Matthew 5, 48, he says, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He doesn't say, you just kind of give it your best shot. He says, be perfect. That's Holiness. I thought of that we know so little about holiness and perfection. We judge what's right and who's good by what we think is right and good. But we need to realize that we judge with wretched lenses and our standards are contaminated with sin. I have an illustration that I'm going to share. I talked to Christy about this last night. I said, babe, talk me out of this. I really want to share this illustration. And she actually tried to talk me out of it and then I think she gave up. And it's an illustration that might get me in trouble. I don't know, but it's such a good illustration. 
There's somebody in our neighborhood. It's not Ken Don Rodden, and it's not Jeff and Amy Wade, and it's not the McCords. I need to qualify. It's somebody in our neighborhood. Their yard is really, really unsatisfactory as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's bad. I mean, I figure that's why they have homeowner associations, to enforce that people want their, you know, in their neighborhood to look nice. And somebody that has like home on the range, you know, is just kind of not appropriate for a neighborhood. And I, I, I've considered this yard for some time over the course of the summer. I've just thought, oh, Lord, convict them of their slovenliness, you know, and convict them of their weeds and their, their unwillingness to water and edge and put weed and feed out, and fertilize. And Now, in the context of this, I want you to also realize that Christy and I have really been trying to work hard on our yard. I mean, we've been putting out fertilizer, and we've been watering, cutting regularly, and our yard's looking pretty good compared to our previous home on the range. So we're really excited about that. Now, in contrast, I want you to hear what happened yesterday morning. Christy goes out to water, first thing. I'm usually the waterer, but Christy, she was going to go run, off some, run some errands, and she was just walking out the door. She said, I'm going to put this out real quick. So, so she's putting the water hose out and really adjusting the level right to where we don't waste any water. And, and the son, the teenage son of this person that lives in our neighborhood, came up to Christy and started giving her some counsel on how to water our grass. Oh, man, and it just struck me so funny. She came inside to share that story with me, and I was sitting eating, and I just kind of stopped mid-bite. And I said, you got to be kidding me. Who is he, Mr. Home on the Range, to assess how we're watering our grass? And I thought, I started thinking about that is such a great picture of who are we to judge what's good or bad. Our yard is full of weeds. How can we assess what's straight or what something weighs? When I, we're, if we're a ruler, we're broken. If we're a scale, we're completely broken. Our standard is not ourselves. Our standard comes from this Bible, this timeless, accurate instrument that reveals who we really are. This Bible is a mirror, and it tells us that we are filthy, and that the best that we have to offer is filthy rags. This Bible says that our heart is deceitful and, des and desperately sick. This Bible tells us that we were brought forth in iniquity and conceived in sin. It tells us we fall short of God's glory and are actually enemies of God. We cannot please God on our own. This Bible says we're wicked and evil. We're dead in our trespasses and sins and we're laying, smelling, and decomposing right next to Lazarus. Now, last week I introduced you. We may have to edit that little story out of the CD, you know, or online version. Or we can all just keep, well, maybe that and we all keep our mouth quiet and don't start, who is that Vince talking about, that neighbor? <laughs> all right, it's just, it's just a good illustration. Last week we considered two observations of the formerly smelly. And we're going to consider two more today. The last two we considered last week. Observations on the formerly smelly is that the formerly smelly are students of the stench of their tombs because they're regularly visiting this word. They look in the mirror so frequently that they go, oh yeah, I stink. Oh yeah, I recognize what I've been delivered from. Oh yeah, I'm constantly reminded of my wretchedness. And I'm also constantly reminded that I still live in this flesh that has a nature that still wants to gravitate toward that. 
So they're frequently reminded of the stench of their tombs. And the second thing, they know the singular reason why they don't stink any longer. Christ crucified and risen, period. Not because of anything in us, but it's only because of him crucified and risen. So today we're going to consider the next two. And then I want to tell you what we're going to do. We're going to look at two things regarding worship, how this impacts our worship. And then we're going to worship in song. And that's why we started so early. You might have been thinking, whoa, he must have a serious message today. We only sang one song. He's going to preach for like an hour. No, it's not going to be that long. We're going to have a message and then we'll worship in response. Worship in song in response. Worship in song is not mood music. And sometimes that's what we use it for to kind of get us in a place where we can hear a message. Today we want to communicate back to him the things that we're discovering today. So here are two more, two more observations on the formerly smelly. Here's the first, that they worship with their lives. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. This is such a pivotal passage of scripture. It's something that comes up frequently in the body and, and uh, whenever we're teaching or preaching, it's such a sweet passage of scripture that helps us understand so much. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 starts with the word therefore. Therefore is there for a reason. It points us back to the previous 11 chapters. You could take out the word therefore and you could put in in response to the previous 11 chapters, I urge you, brethren, as a result of the previous 11 chapters, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. What it's saying there is in view of God's mercies, because of what's been communicated in the previous 11 chapters, you give him your life in worship. Let's explore that a little bit. Turn back to Romans chapter 3. Keep your finger in Romans chapter 12. And turn to Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. You hear these extremes? All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Look down to verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's almost kind of a summary of what we just read. No one's righteous, no, not one. No one does good. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. All have sinned. And all fall short of God's glory. Okay, listen. What we're developing here are the mercies of God. We're laying a little bitty foundation there. That the mercies of God include appreciation for the, our, who we are. None does good. No one's righteous. No, not one. That's the foundation of the mercies of God. Here's another picture of that. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. Verses 6 and 7. 
For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The carnal mind, the mind before Christ, the mind apart from Christ is an enemy of God. Now, those are the foundations for the mercies of God. Here's the rest of the building. Turn to Romans chapter 5 verse 8. Here's where we begin to see shape to the mercies of God. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, in that while we were not righteous, not even one, in that while we were one, none who understands, while we were those who can't even seek for God, while we were those who have turned aside, while we were those whose throat is an open grave, Christ died for us. That's the mercies of God. That's the mercies of God. Here's another picture, Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those are the mercies of God. And Romans chapter 12 says, in view of those mercies, worship with your lives. In view of those mercies, worship with nothing less than your lives. Worship is not a song, but an offered life. That's the only appropriate response to these sort of mercies. I've considered as I've examined this and really tried to unpack this, that we really don't know what we're worshiping in view of unless we take periodic whiffs of our smelly, hopeless, dark tomb and have a full appreciation for what we've been delivered from and essentially appreciate and get our hands around the mercies of God. The mercies of God are fuel for worship. We can't worship without having an appreciation for the mercies of God. We can attend church every time the doors are open. We can know the words to every worship song. And we can belt it out. But without the offered life and the fuel that comes from appreciating the mercies of God, we're simply singing songs and doing church. If you don't understand your condition, you may think a song is sufficient. If you don't understand your condition, you may think that church attendance is sufficient. Attending church is important. Yeah. But the only thing appropriate in terms of a response to the mercies of God, is the offered life. Every part, every space, every pursuit, every day, Christians tend to worship in compartments. Think about it. Think about the people that we are on Sunday mornings. I want to ask you the question. Ask, ask yourself the question. Am I the same person that I am Monday through Saturday that I am in corporate worship on Sunday morning? If you're not, then you're living in compartments. We're not to do that. The worship life, the life of worship is offered in its total. The formerly smelly worship with their lives. The second thing is the formerly smelly worship from a pierced heart. Turn back to Acts chapter 2. 
We're actually going to pick up where we just left off. We were reading about uh, Peter's boldness and his preaching. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, he's communicated to him a second time. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Listen. Listen to what happens next. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as, as the Lord our God will call to himself. And many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. Those who had been pierced to the heart were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Listen, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. That's where I want to land. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Back in verse 37, we use the phrase that they were pierced to the heart. Let me help you appreciate that. The word there for pierced means that they were stabbed in the heart. Their hearts were stomped on. Homer actually used that word in the Greek in some of his writings. And that word that is used there for pierced is the word that described a herd of, of horses trampling the ground with their hooves. Their hearts were trampled with a herd of horses. It was pierced. It was beaten. They were crushed. As a result of hearing that they crucified Christ, they were crushed. That was their response. They were pierced to the heart. They realized that they nailed Christ to the cross, albeit through the hands of sinful men. They were responsible, and they took ownership of it, and they were crushed. And then in verse 43, as a response of as an outcome to that pierced, crushed, horse-trodden heart. In verse 43, it says, Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Kept feeling is a verb that uh, is actually an imperfect tense verb. It means that it's keeping on going. It's not a past tense verb. It's not a, what, at a point in time. It's an imperfect tense that means that they kept feeling it. They kept feeling a sense of awe. It's not something that happened once. It's a place where they lived. It's not a place that they visited. It's a place that they owned. They kept feeling a sense of awe that came as a result of their pierced, horse-trodden heart. That's where worship comes from. That's what worship sounds like. They kept feeling a sense of awe. That's worship right there. The word awe, the word or the phrase there, feeling a sense of awe, in the original language, is basically to be translated inner phobos. You can imagine what phobos means. If you heard of phobias, it means inner fear. That's what the translators called awe. They kept feeling a sense of inner fear, and they kept fearing the Lord as a result of appreciating their pierced heart, appreciating the role that they played in Christ's crucifixion. 
that only comes from a pierced heart. The formerly smelly keep feeling a sense of awe. The formerly smelly keep feeling a sense of awe, and that comes from a pierced, horse-trodden heart that's crushed over our sinfulness and wretchedness. I'm close by challenging you with the thought, if you're not worshiping with your lives, If you slept through the last 20, 30 minutes and you're just now waking up, if you're just achieving your check in the block by getting your church on, if it's not a place that you live, and if that worship that you experience or that, that you think you're experiencing does not come from a pierced heart, there's one of, two, one of two possibilities. One may be that you never have had your heart pierced in the first place. You may have prayed a prayer, and somebody may have told you, hey, man, you just pray this prayer, and you're in, dude. You won't go to hell, and you're on the non-hell program. Hey, man, that's cool. I don't want to go to hell. I'll pray that prayer. But you never appreciated what you've been delivered from. If your heart has never been pierced, then you have not worshiped. If your heart has not been broken over your wretchedness and sinfulness, at some point, you have never worshiped. You may know a lot of songs. But you've never worshipped. That's where it comes from. A pierced and broken heart. Either you don't know Christ or you've stepped so far away from that tomb and the mirror that reminds us of that tomb that you've forgotten our wretchedness and sinfulness. You've forgotten what we've been delivered and saved from. If you haven't experienced worship in a long time or ever, if you don't know Christ... Man, I put a little note in the bulletin this week encouraging you to connect with one of the elders. You might ought to connect with the person sitting next to you. They may know Christ, and they're begging to share Christ with you. Or you can connect with any of the elders. It is a priority. And if you're in that place where you just haven't experienced worship in a long time, go back to this book. This book will take you to the mirror. And the only appropriate response to that is a broken heart. And then you'll experience true worship. I want to pray and then we'll begin. We'll have our worship and song. Lord, we thank you so much for the word. Thank you so much for what it teaches us and shows us about our condition and our stench and our wretchedness apart from Christ. Lord, it creates in us an appreciation for our onlyness and the singleness of hope that we have in Christ. It gives us an appreciation that apart from Christ that we are nothing and can do nothing. Lord, it causes us to grip him tighter and it causes us to cling to each other more. It causes us to desperately want to hear the preached word even to the point where we get a good night's rest so that we can stay awake and engage it. Lord, it also causes us to eat your word between Sundays. It causes us to cling to each other and to seek out teachers who are unpacking that word and showing us how to apply it to our lives. Lord, I beg you to keep us in that place of people that are characterized by true worship, not with a nice song, but with an offered life. Lord, we express our gratitude to you right now. In Christ's name we pray, amen.